If you would please turn with me in your copy of the Word of God to the book of Amos and chapter 4. The Word of God open. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, Great is the Lord, and worthy to be praised. Your greatness is unsearchable. We come this morning and this evening to worship You, O God, to acknowledge that Your ways are past finding out, O the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Your judgments are unsearchable from You, through You, and to You are all things. We pray, O God, that You would draw near, that You will speak to us this evening and make Your Word felt in this place. And afterwards, O God, as we continue with the men of the church to seek to lead up the next generation of leaders, we pray Your blessing there as well, that Your Word will spread rapidly and be glorified. We offer these prayers in Christ's name. Amen. This is the Word of God. Remember the last chapter, Amos was condemning the winter house and the summer houses, the ivory palaces of the rich and the wealthy in Israel, the northern tribes of Samaria. And now he turned his attention to those who occupy those houses. This is the Word of God. Please take heed how you hear. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy. You say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. The Lord has sworn by His holiness that, behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks, and you shall go out through the breaches each one straight ahead, and you shall be cast out into Harmon, declares the Lord. Come to Bethel and transgress, to Gilgal and multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened, and proclaim freewill offerings. Publish them, for so you love to do, O people of Israel, declares the Lord. I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities, and lack of bread in all your places. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. They also withheld the rain from you when there were yet three months to the harvest. I would send rain on one city and send no rain on another city. One field would have rain, and the field on which it did not rain would wither. So two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water and would not be satisfied. Yet You did not return to me, declares the Lord. I struck you with blight and mildew, your many gardens and your vineyards, your fig trees and your olive trees, the locusts devoured. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I sent among you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword and carried away your horses. And they made the stench of your camp go up into your nostrils. 
yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew some of you as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were as a brand plucked out of the burning, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. For behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth, the Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. Amen. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but this is the Word of God, and it endures forever. Well, the people of Israel, the northern tribes, were coming towards the end of an Indian summer of prosperity. You remember Assyria in the north had been occupied with internal divisions in the years to come. Babylon, a nation-state within Assyria would rise up and conquer the nation of Assyria and become Babylon. Okay. I found this on the web. Thank you. You're welcome. No, I want you to be quiet, Assyria. Okay. Unbelievable. Excuse me. For... Right, you can't win for losing. She's silenced, I hope. Um, where was I? So, um, Assyria's got trouble, right? And, and there's been 50 years of prosperity in Israel. The bumper harvests, the economy's going well, and the rich are getting richer, but the poor are also getting poorer. In many ways, it's a picture of America today. And what's surprising as you look at this land uh, is that not the absence of religion, but the presence of religion. These people are very religious in their prosperity, and they love what they are doing in church. God says, for so you love to do, O people of Israel, speaking of all of their many sacrifices and tithes and so forth and so on, Amos 4, 4 and 5. And yet, the, the abiding lesson of Amos 4 is that what we love to do in church is not necessarily what God loves to receive in church. It's one thing to satisfy yourselves with your religion. It's quite another to satisfy God. And the other abiding lesson is that when God is the problem, religion is never the answer. What transforms, what makes the difference between mere ritual and a religion that satisfies God is the presence of repentance. And if you were listening as we read the passage, you'll hear that refrain again and again and again, yet you did not return to me. God is calling His people back to Himself, but His people have no ears for what God is saying. All they can hear is the empty clang and sound of their religious exercises. So, I want you to look at this passage with me this evening under the, under the head of um, busy people, busy God. Busy people, busy God. Busy people. Uh, they're busy making their life easy and their religion exciting. They're busy making their life easy, first of all. Uh, Amos takes a snapshot of the culture. And 
he zooms in on the woman. Uh, Alec Matir says, women are the trendsetters in society. They have ever been the final guardians of morals, fashions, and standards. Consequently, Amos and Isaiah after him can isolate the heartbeat of society by examining its typical woman. What are these women like? Well, Isaiah addresses them. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan. Amos is perhaps not the most politically correct person in the world. Um, he's, he's a country boy, and, um, and he's being direct here, and he's not flattering these women. Um, he's describing them in purely animalistic terms. What is a cow? But a cow is a beast that always looks down, never looks up, and is happy if um, it's got enough food in the trough and enough water in the well and a half-decent bull to cover her every so often and to sire the next generation of calves. And that's what cows are. And Amos is saying that that's what these women are too. They live their lives always looking down and never looking up. And there are three uh, participle phrases. A participle is an ing word that carries the idea of an. Uh, it's a noun as a verb, right? But it carries the idea of of um, ever ongoing act, act, um, action. They are oppressing the poor. They are crushing the needy. They are saying to their husbands, bring that we may drink. They have no concern for the poor. Their only concern is for their next glass of wine. These are women living in the lap of luxury. And it seems that they're gaining their luxury off the backs of undertrodden poor. Now, it's very, it's very important to realize this in this day of social justice, that God is never against wealth. Some of the best men in the Bible were wealthy. Job, Abraham, and so forth uh, were wealthy men. God is never against wealth. Money is a tool for buying what really matters. But he is against money gained over the, on the backs of um, downtrodden poor. Uh, a day's work deserves a day's wage, and we need to be concerned about that. And I've told you this before, but Uncle Tommy in Mississippi, his attitude for his business was, he says, I glorify God as businessman by making money. I don't glorify God by losing money, right? I make money, but I've made more money paying more people more money than anybody else. My business exists, yes, to glorify God by producing a, a good or a service, but it also exists like a tree where birds can shelter. My business exists, he would say, so that so my workers can work and find a place to work uh, and uh, where they can use their gifts and, and work and, and, and their energy to help me in my business and also to earn a living for their family. And that's good. And in a, in a, in a true capitalistic culture, um, a, a gospel capitalism, we allow the markets to set the wage of the workers, right? There's a, there's a invisible hand. 
wealth of nations, right? So there's an invisible hand behind the scenes that sets the wage that's appropriate to the, to the job. But the problem is man is inherently selfish, and business owners over the years have got together, and what happens? You have monopolies, or, or groups of businesses will get together and say, okay, we're going to basically um, crush our workers by, we will all agree to pay our workers a, a wage that's lower than they deserve. But if in a Christian capitalistic culture, if, if we let the market pay the wage, and you underpay your workers, and they're good workers, well, somebody else will come and hire them from you, and they'll take them, and you'll have no one working for you, right? So that's going to be a problem. And so the market will naturally set the appropriate wage. But if you get these kind of monopolies forming where people come together and say, okay, we're only going to pay our workers this much, we're going to keep the price low, um, then basically the workers are trapped and stuck. And that kind of thing seems to have been happening in, in Israel. These poor folk were working and we're working for an unfair wage, and these wealthy, rich, fat cats and fat cows, husbands and their wives, were profiting off the backs of these, these people, the poor, the needy, the destitute, and they're being crushed. And for a while, that mindset works, but only for a while. You see these women lying on their ivory beds and calling for a glass of wine. And it's funny, it's almost funny, but um, they, say, they say not to their husbands but to their lords, and several of the commentators make the point, Amos is, Amos is jabbing the husbands because there's no doubt who the lords are in this relationship, and it's not the men. The women are calling the shots. It's so often true as... I've heard more than one woman boast, my husband is the head, but I'm the neck. I turn him whatever way I will. And that spirit um, is alive and well, not just out in the world, but in the church of Amos's day, and I would say in the church of our day as well. It's shocking how much power women have in our homes. It's, it's one thing to be fighting a battle out in the world, but every husband knows Hitler's mistake. He can't fight a war on two fronts. So when you go home, the woman can be very strong and can kowtow. Even a strong leader, I've seen it many times in my ministry, they go home, but their wife calls the shots because the husband doesn't want to fight a battle out in the world and in the home, and so the wife gets whatever she wants, and it's, it's all part of him cherishing her and so forth and so on. Um, but it's also part of the curse as as. Moses spoke in Genesis, and God said about Eve, her desire will be for you, but you must rule her. Uh, and the desire there is a, a, a force trying to take control, trying to take the reins. And human society has ever been struggling with that male passivity, which was the ultimate cause of the fall. Adam sat there in the Garden of Eden and did nothing as his wife um, made the decision and then ever afterwards, the wife and the husband battling for control, and often the men just backing down and letting their wives be the lord of the home. In um, defiance of their God-given rule, and that's what's going on here. And God responds, "The Lord has sworn by His holiness." It's it's one of the one of the most intense oaths you'll ever hear God make. 
He's underlying how much this bothers him, how much this self-satisfied preening, this self-indulgent party lifestyle bothers him. The Lord has sworn by His holiness. His holiness represents the, the, the essence of God, what makes Him God, what sets Him apart as Creator from everything else in creation. This great gulf, you go from the mouse to the mammal to the man and on to the angels, and you get to the end of created existence, and there's a gulf. It's not that you go from the archangel to God. The archangel, there's a gulf. That's the end of creation. And then there's a gulf, and it goes on forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever without end. We're thinking this afternoon, how long would it take at light speed to fly across the, the diameter of Betelgeuse, 562 million miles? At light speed, it would take you 107 years, I believe. I think that was the answer I came up with. A long time, right? But it's, you know, it's, it's doable if you have good health insurance um, and can fly at light speed. But you leave the end of creation, and you go on forever and ever and ever, and you never get to God. God belongs in a realm that's completely set apart from all that's created. You can't get from where we are to where He is. doesn't matter how fast you fly, how far you go. God is in a realm all by Himself. That's what He means by holy. He's different. And God swears by His holiness. It's the same formula He uses in in Psalm 89.35. It's a gospel promise. He's, He's God's assuring us He means business, right? So, in Psalm 89, if you turn back there, 35... He's saying, I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie. His offspring shall endure forever, his throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon, it shall be established forever, a faithful witness in the skies. So, and Hebrews 6 tells us God makes an oath not because His Word is un, uncertain. He's not making an oath for His own benefit. He's making an oath for our benefit. He wants us to know He means business, and he, he, He's bending over backwards to, to assure us that He will be faithful to His gospel promise. Well, in Amos 4, God is bending over backwards to warn these women He will be faithful to His promise of judgment. The Lord has sworn by His holiness that, behold, the days are coming when you are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks. It's a terrible picture. This, the walls of Samaria torn down by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. And the Assyrians, they did this, they got fish hooks, big metal hooks, and put them through the upper lip and into the nose, or through the mouth, top of the mouth, and out the nose of people. And they would lead the, the, the exiles into Assyria. 
People are trying to get into America. We've got Uyghur people trying to get in. We're building walls, trying to keep them out. Nobody wanted to go to Assyria. When you went to Assyria, it was a bad place, and they were being dragged off with fish hooks through their nose. These women, um, it's a terrible picture of from the top to the bottom. Matir again says, we're bound to ask what there is in this passage which so especially affronts him, God, as the Holy One, the Divine One, who in the totality of his nature is unutterably and perfectly moral. It's a violent oath he makes. It appeals to that which is inmost, highest, and most of all pervasive about God, his holiness. What can it be that so moves him? Quite simply, he says, a society and a religion organized on the basis of human self-pleasing. So busy, busy making their lives easy. These women led away like the animals they are and cast out like the trash they have become. You shall go out through the breaches, each one straight ahead. You shall be cast out into Harmon. The commentators are unsure what Harmon is, but they're agreed it's not a good place. You shall be cast out into Harmon, declares the Lord. So busy making their life easy and busy making their religion exciting. Verse 4, come to Bethel. Now, it may be, and several commentators make this point, that Amos is mocking the priests. The priests are hearing Amos's judgment, and they're going, okay, the answer is more church. Everyone come to Bethel. Everyone come to Bethel. We're going to worship God, right, and turn this ship around. Come to Bethel. Like, come and worship, come and worship. Da, da, da. So, that's, that, that's this priest, right? Come to Bethel. And Amos is saying, go to Bethel. But all you're going to succeed in doing at Bethel is adding to your transgressions. Come to Bethel and transgress, and to Gilgal, another high place, and multiply transgression. That's all you're doing. You're just making it, you're like a dirty man with dirty hands trying to clean a stain in a wedding dress by rubbing it. You're just making it worse, Amos is saying. You're not making it better. You cannot fix what's broken in your relationship with God simply by doing more religion. But it doesn't stop these people trying, and it doesn't stop perhaps some of you trying. I've seen in my ministry men who have had hidden private sins in private, and it's gross, life-dominating sins. And Yet, when they come to church, they are the most pious, religious, doctrinally orthodox. They'll fight over every dotted I and every cross T, um, and it's, it's, a, it's who can keep the Sabbath day better. It's almost as if they think if we can keep the Sabbath day better, the fourth commandment, then that can atone for the fact that they walk all over the seventh commandment or some other commandment. And Amos is saying, you can't fix what's broken in your relationship with God simply by doubling down in church. Now, you've got to be careful. There's this movement, okay, in America where we say, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. That's 
monumentally arrogant whenever God is the inventor of religion. So basically what you're saying to God is, stuff you. I'm not going to come to you your way. I'm going to invent my own way with interacting with the sacred. That's not what I'm saying, okay? I am saying, though, that you and I cannot fix what's broken in our lives and broken in our relationship with God simply by coming to church. The best we can do is just make it worse. Like Jonathan Edwards had this illustration in one of his sermons. It's pretty graphic. But if your worst enemy approached you, so somebody had really wronged you, despised you, slandered you, robbed you, whatever, assaulted you, he's your worst enemy, he hits you, and you hit him. But he, he decides he's going to come and make it better, and he comes and hugs you. But before he comes and hugs, he vomits all over himself, first of all, and rolls around in the pigsty, in the, in the pig manure, and, and then comes and tries to hug you and kiss you right? Is that going to make it better? <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> He's going to become 10,000 times more unspeakably offensive in your eyes. And that's what's happening here. Come to Bethel and transgress, to Gilgal, and multiply transgressions. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. The tithes were normally brought every year, and these people are so religious, they're bringing their tithes every three days. Like the Pharisees, you, you tithe even your mint. And Jesus says, in this you do well, right? But you've neglected the weightier aspects of the law, justice and mercy. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened, and proclaim free will offerings. Publish them. The free will offerings were private affairs that the person would decide themselves in their own free will, in the Calvinistic sense, and they would bring the worship to God, to the, through the priest, yes, but it was a private matter. But they're publishing it. They're like the, the Pharisees who would drop their money into the, the coffer, and they would pay people to blow a trumpet just at the very moment they're dropping their check into the coffer. Everyone turns around, oh, by accident, you've just seen me put this huge amount of money into the check. Oh, so embarrassed, you know, <laughs> these things happen. And um, Jesus says, the little widow who put in her mite, the penny, all she had, she puts it in. She put it in privately, and God saw. You put it in publicly and on purpose, and men saw. But God also saw what was going on in your heart. For so you love to do, O people of Israel. The people love their worship. And that's a, a sobering point. So often I hear people say, well, this kind of worship is more meaningful to me, right? That's never the point. It's never the point. It's not what's meaningful to you. It's what's meaningful to God, Just because you love it doesn't guarantee that God will. Now, this is not, I'm not making a subtle job at contemporary worship. Um, we have traditional worship here, but we sing some modern songs. And I've heard contemporary worship done very, very well. I've also heard it done very, very badly. And I've also heard um, classical worship done very badly and very well. We do it well here, I think, in God's mercy, thanks to Becca's extraordinary playing and others who can step in and help us. Um, but um, 
though the, the form of our worship doesn't guarantee it pleases God, because it must come from the heart, of course, you understand. But, but I've heard classical music being done very badly, where it becomes a classical concert, which I think is just, just as offensive to God as a rock concert. Because if you're engaging in the medium of worship, but the, 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 the mode you're, you're engaging, you're, you're expressing is that of a concert, it's very difficult to have a concert which is all about entertainment be a good vehicle to carry the medium of worship which is supposed to be all about God. And as um, Marshall McLuhan famously said, the medium is the message. The medium you choose is the message you're preaching. And so if your medium is is a man-centered concert, don't pretend you're engaging in God-centered worship. It doesn't matter whether your concert's Handel's Messiah or whether it's, you know, rock concert. It doesn't matter. If it's a concert designed to entertain the people, it cannot be a service that will end up worshiping God. The medium is the message. And you see, the thing is, God doesn't want our religion. He doesn't want even so much our our, our worship, the activity of worship. And he, and he, he certainly doesn't want our money. He wants our hearts. Turn back to Hosea 6. And here's Hosea 6.1. Come, let us return to the Lord, for He has torn us, that He may heal us. He has struck us down. He will bind us up. After two days, He will revive us, and the third day, He will raise us up. We may live before Him. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. And this is Israel and Judah, right? And they're saying, we're going to go back to God, and it's going to to be fine. We've been a bit remiss. We haven't had family worship very often in recent weeks, and we haven't been to church as often as we should have been. We're going to go back to church and fix it. We're going to go back and press on, and God will come and bless us. And you may have read those verses as a positive thing. I'm not sure they are. Verse 4, God says, what shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Therefore, I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. It's it's it's. And that's amazing. God said, I want loyalty. I want love more than your… Even the sacrifices that speak of the coming of Christ, He would say to us, I want your love. I want your loyalty much more than I want you to sing, 
you know, 10,000, oh, for a thousand tongues, or 10,000 reasons, whatever it is. It's not, it's, it's the heart I want, not the song. Busy people. And then in verse 6, we have a busy God. They're not the only ones being busy, God being busy. And the refrain, yet you did not return to me, verse 6. Yet you did not return to me, verse 8. Yet you did not return to me, verse 9. Yet you did not return to me, verse 10. Yet you did not return to me, verse 11. What's God been doing? He's been chastising Israel. If you look at the end of Deuteronomy and Leviticus, you'll see the covenant curses, and the covenant curses have been employed by God, not in a mean-spirited way, but in a kind-hearted way. He's calling them home. It's like the woman in South America. I heard Derek Thomas speak about in a sermon years, years ago, he read about her in some book, I forget it, but this, this woman, and she was this young teenage girl, she lived in a village out in the middle of nowhere, and she left home and went to the big city, and there she fell on hard times, and she became a prostitute, and sold all of her dignity and her purity and her family's hopes, sold them all down the river, and was lost. And after several years, her mother could bear it no more, and she went to the big city, sold half what she had to buy a ticket, and goes to this big smoke. And she goes around all of the brothels and hostels of the, of the big city in South America. And she had a photograph of the family. She put it on, the, she pinned it up on um, a Polaroid picture of the family. She put, put it up on the brothel notice boards, and on the little white space at the bottom, she wrote, wherever you are and whatever you've done, come home. And that's what God has been doing to Israel here. Not with a photograph, but with these judgments. Famine. I give you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places, yet you did not return to me. Drought. He also withheld the rain from you when there were yet three months to harvest. That's the harvest in March-April time, just when the heads of grain were filling out the lack of rain at this crucial time would have brought disaster on the farming community. And God withholds the grain, not completely, but from over certain areas. Certain areas were blessed and certain areas felt the weight of it, but there was drought, yet you did not return to me. Then there was pestilence. I, and, and the Hebrew is very definite, I myself struck you. I myself struck you with blight, mildew, your many gardens and your vineyards, your fig trees, your olive trees, the locusts devoured, yet you did not return to me. Then there was defeat in battle. I dealt with you as I dealt with Pharaoh in the Old Testament. If you act like Pharaoh, like ducks, you know, if you walk like a duck, quack like a duck, and fly like a duck, at hunting season expect to be shot like a duck, right? And God's saying, you've been acting like Egypt, 
I sent among you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword and carried away your horses, and I made the stench of your camp go up into your nostrils. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. And then the final step was near total annihilation. I overthrew some of you, as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were as a brand plucked out of the burning. It's like the, the smoke of a great furnace whenever Sodom was destroyed. And of course, God completely destroyed Sodom. But He reaches down here with, uh, with Israel, and He plucks a few of them out of the, burn, out, out of the conflagration, smoking brands, useless but rescued from total destruction. And yet, God says, you did not return to me. And it's sad. And one of the reasons I think that happens is we tend to ignore what's obvious. God's saying, I myself did this to you. But Israel probably blamed the meteorologists, those cursed weathermen, never have a good word for us on Monday morning. And, and it's the cloud, it's the weather cycle, it's the, you know, the Wuhan virus, it's, you know, all this and all that. But we tend to see the fruit of God's judgment as just mere fruit, and we don't realize the roots of God's judgment. I have done this to you. So the gas prices, it's Biden's fault, right? It's No, it's Russia's fault. The rising food costs, the, 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 the food processing factories that are on fire all across America, 20 or so in the last six months, whatever, and the the poultry um, place on fire, and it, it could be the CIA, I don't know, I'm, I have no idea, but this might also be the providence of Almighty God finally catching up with America. And before it gets, you know, um, before, you know, it, it goes from bad to worse, before it gets even worse sometimes, we often think, well, it'll get better, it'll, it'll, it'll turn around, you know. We'll, we'll come back to God. We'll try a bit harder in church. We'll be more diligent. And, but when God is the problem, simply being religious is not the answer, unless that religion is joined with repentance. Yet you did not return to me. And the end of the passage is so very, very sobering. If we will not come and meet God for mercy, then He will come and meet us in judgment. Therefore, thus I will do to you, Israel, because I will do this to you. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. What's He mean? Thus I will do. This I will do. It's, it's, it's vague, but God's saying, you'll know it when it comes. Because when it comes, you'll meet me in the judgment. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. I was reading this week in Tim Chester's wonderful little book, You Can Change, really helpful book. And he says this, and he's talking about the reaping and sowing logic of life. What you reap, you will sow. And he says, 
Only in fairy stories do you plant beans and reap magic stalks with treasure at the end. And then he quotes Joshua Harris about reaping and sowing, which is incredible. Joshua Harris, who's now forsaken the faith and I think become homosexual. Unbelievable. Um, How blind we can be. If he can be that blind, I kiss dating goodbye. I never thought he would end up kissing Jesus goodbye. May God keep us kept. Why are such passages in the Bible? They're there to cause you and me. We are made of the same stuff, people. You pray for me, I pray for you. Lord, keep us kept, or we shall not be kept at all. And these threats are not empty. He who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth, the Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. Now you think to me, well, that's not very positive. I thought this morning you were saying about God being positive. We fear God because He's so good. And I'm going to use an illustration now, which I'm going to need later in my <laughs> sermons in the morning, but that's okay. We'll figure that out when it comes to it. But the, the illustration of this, I think, I remember. Do you remember whenever Pilgrim is walking towards Palace Beautiful? And there's a, a, a pathway, a narrow pathway of light. But either side of that pathway, there are lions roaring and scratching and lurching for him, and Pilgrim steps back and goes, I see you now, why timid, and somebody else turned back. And he doesn't know what to do, and Bunyan says, what Pilgrim could not see was that the lions were chained. And the porter at House Beautiful calls out to him, stay in the light, and you'll have no fear of the lions. For the lions are there to test whether your faith be true or not. As he walked in the light, this is a, he's, he's, Bunyan's riffing on Isaiah 37 on the highway of holiness where there are no wild beasts. As he walked in the light, the lions could bite and scratch and jump at him, but they couldn't get him. He's in the light. And as we walk by the Spirit, we don't fulfill the lust of the flesh, and we don't face any of the threats if you live according to the flesh, you will die. That's like a lion growling at us. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. What you reap, you will sow. That's the lion growling at us. And those lions are hungry, waiting to devour the non-elect. Those who, who ignore the threatenings and walk off the light for a party, and they get devoured or badly bitten and scratched and savaged and get frightened back onto the light again, and think, well, we'll not do that again, and they walk down the narrow line. And that's what this chapter functions. This, function is one of, this chapter is one of God's lions. Prepare to meet your God coming in judgment. And here's Joe Christian walking off the light and into the darkness, and he hears the lions roaring of a, a God coming not dressed in the gospel robes of mercy, but coming dressed in the judgmental robes of damnation. And he's terrified him. 
and back on to light again. And as we walk in the light, our only experience of God is grace, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. That's the only way God ever deals with His elect. It's love, mercy, peace, fellowship. That's it. No other word, no other posture. Our sins have been dealt with, which means uh, The most important question then is, how do I know if I'm one of God's elect? And Paul says, the Lord knows those who are His, but let those who name the name of Christ do what? Depart from iniquity. Repent. Turn away from your sin. Walk in the light. In the light, there's no beast to fear, no wrath to fear, no curse to fear, no judgment to fear. We step off from the darkness, or light, and walk into the darkness, and God will send these lions upon us, and they can savage the living daylights out of us. And the tragedy is, God says, yet my people did not return to me. And if you continue going that way, you'll just prove you never were one of God's elect. And so this passage stands like that photograph in the brothel. And in time, the girl did come down, and one day she's walking down from a night of drugs and sex and all manner of uncleanness to her breakfast, and she walks down the hall to go out, I don't know, to some fast food place for her breakfast in the morning, and she walks past the, the cork board, and there is a picture of her family. And beneath the picture in the white space, there's the message from her mother, wherever you are and whatever you've done, won't you come home? And that's what God is saying to Israel. And He's saying it to you and me this evening. Trying harder at church isn't the answer. Giving more money to church isn't the answer. It might help if a building project comes down the line, but, but it's not the answer, right? The answer is coming with our hearts broken, bruised, wounded like the prodigal son and saying, Father, I am not worthy and having the Father run and meet us and wrapping His arms around us and saying, my son was lost. He's alive again. He was gone, and He's come home. That's the Father's heart. And all of the growling lions are simply meant, like, the, like Watson said, never see the rod, but the hand that holds it, it's the hand of your Father, and the worst He ever does is whip His children into heaven. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, Lord, have mercy. It's so easy for these people, it's so easy for this preacher, oh God, to wander away from you, to be busy in religion, making sermons and Bible studies, and yet being distant from God. And I pray, oh God, that you would draw our hearts back to you. You would give you our hearts, and you would seal them for thee, O oh God, for they're prone to wander. Lord, we feel it. Seal them before thy courts above. We offer these prayers in Jesus' name. Amen.